And I think the more you create like a culture around how do we understand our users? How do we build that empathy? That's kind of like one of the things you can't just like hack. It's got to be a part of like, no, we care. And that comes through a lot more in a product like company. Creating great products isn't just about product managers and their day-to-day interactions with developers. It's about how an organization supports products as a whole, the systems, the processes, and cultures in place that help companies deliver value to their customers. With the help of some boundary-pushing guests and inspiration from your most pressing product questions, we'll dive into this system from every angle and help you think like a great product leader. This is the Product Thinking Podcast. Here's your host, Melissa Perry. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Product Thinking Podcast. Today, we're talking all about product-led growth and what you can do to implement that as a company. I'm joined by Wes Bush, who is the CEO of ProductLed.com. Welcome, Wes. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me, Melissa. So I've been following you. We were just talking about this before we jumped on, but I've been following you for a very long time. You wrote the book on product-led growth. It's been a really awesome resource for a lot of companies out there. What made you start to get into product-led growth and kind of find yourself on this path? Yeah, so it's been a long journey, but it really started, I was uh, working at these B2B software companies and I was doing digital marketing for what was then defined as like you would call it a more of a sales-led company. And so I was in charge of getting leads and my whole thing was like, okay, I'll get leads for the sales team so they can then qualify them, reach out to some of them if they're a good fit. And so I was spending like hundreds of thousands of dollars for running like white papers, guides. I was that guy <laughs> behind the guide. Uh, that you downloaded. And so I would always have the conversations with sales teams and everything. Like, how are those leads? Like, were they, they good? And like, a lot of times they're like, they didn't know who we were. Or like, they're like, yeah, there was like, they were kind of like resistant to like talking to us. I'm like, okay, yeah, no surprise there. But um, <laughs> when we launched a free trial at this one company called Vidyard, first time it was like, oh, okay, this is like, feels more in line with how people want to purchase. But it it completely bombed the first time. Uh, it's like people were going in and they couldn't figure out how to use the product. We didn't really put resources behind it. And so I was like, okay, first product-led attempt kind of fail, flop. And then the second time we launched this free product, it was like, it just clicked. It was a simple Chrome extension. People could record a video in less than a minute. And it went from like zero to 100,000 users in less than a year. And at that point, I was like, that was the kind of epiphany for me. I was like, wow, I get it. Like there's this hard way of growing a business where it feels like you're pushing a rock up a hill. That to me felt like that more sales-led model where I was like, okay, I'm just acquiring leads. I'm like sending them to the sales team and they're going to follow up with them. And people don't really want to talk to them for the first touch point for many of them. Not everybody. Some people loved it. But then there was this other product that mentioned, which was like, how the heck could you grow that fast without that motion? And then I started consulting and that kind of like led into it. And then when the term product-led growth was kind of coined by OpenView, I was like, oh, that's what I've been doing. And I was like, finally, let's kind of break this down and share the methodology of like how companies can do that. So yeah, that's uh, how I kind of fell into PLG. Awesome. Uh, That's a really fun story. And I, I love how it just reflects to like making the product better for the customer is really what fueled it. It sounds like everybody getting in there and being able to try it. I know I'm also extremely frustrated when I can't just try things out. I'm like, I don't want to talk to a human. I just want to try it, see if it works. 
And I think it, it comes down to like, do you want to feel empowered like to, to do something? And it's like, okay, yeah, like I could type into Google or chat GBT, like, okay, what's my latest problem and like get some help on it. Or it's like that I could like go through, fill out a form and then talk to someone to fill out like, okay, what is this problem? It's just like, one is like, here's the, the dials, the controls, you can figure it out on your own. And the other one's like, well, let us help you. And like, there is time and place for that. But I think generally speaking more and more, it's like, no, just give me the right tools and I'll, I'll figure it out. Yeah, it's like, I love that concept of product-led growth really empowers your user. So for the people who don't really know what this term is or you know what product-led growth means, or they think it means something else, <laughs> Can you define it for us? Like, what is product-led growth? Totally. So I define product-led growth as like whenever you're using your product as the main vehicle to acquire, engage, retain, and also monetize your users. So like every part of the business is using the product in a way to hit their goals. So like from a marketing perspective, it's like, well, actually, what's our main call to action? It's like that it's the free product most often. And then when it comes to like onboarding, customer success and everything is like, well, you know what? We could, uh, in theory, mainly onboard everybody or we could give them like the self-serve knowledge base. We could make it really easy for people to, to get the value. And so like every team is just kind of utilizing the product to hit their goals. Great. So when you say utilizing the product, like, can you give us an example of when the product would lead monetization? Like, what does that look like? Instead of sales being like, hey, go buy this and talk to a person on the phone. What types of techniques do people put into place to do product-led growth? Yeah, so when it comes to like monetization, there's a precursor to this one. And I was so kind of afraid, <laughs> I'll say it, whenever I was like deciting the subtitle for the book on product led growth, because I, I knew it was going to be called product led growth, but the subtitle I was like, oh man, I spent like embarrassing amount of time on that. I but it was called you. how to build a product that sells itself. And I was like, you know, the monetization part of it, it's like, is that possible? And so the way I kind of construed it was like, well, if you actually give people a super valuable experience. If they're able to get the value on their own, the next step that often happens in a lot of these self-serve apps is, I love it, I want more of it, then I'm going to upgrade. And so that part of like the product actually leading the monetization is actually very real and it happens a lot. And it's like, well, when it comes to that empowerment, again, it's like, they made it effortless for me to upgrade. I could choose the plan that was best for me. I could easily identify which plan was right for me. I could pay with my credit card on my own. And there was as little to no friction as possible in that whole experience. So yeah, that's kind of the product leading that, that part of the monetization, if that explains it. Yeah, so I could see this playing out a lot to, you know, with your upsells and your cross-sells inside your product, getting more revenue per user with that. In the companies I've seen who've done this successfully too, you know, it looks like we have to segment different types of features and keep those features behind a paywall in order to do that. And where I see some people actually struggle with it is figuring out like, what features are going to be the most valuable that we can get more money per user for? Do you have some kind of framework to think through like, you know, where should we start? How do we how do we grow revenue? How should we be thinking about unlocking more revenue as people use these products? 
Yeah. And I think like part of this too, like one of the most common questions I hear a lot with companies that are like kind of new to building a product that business is also like on the the beginning part of that is like what to give away for free. That is kind of like what to gate and then like what should we upsell and all those things. The easiest way I found to kind of decide for each of those buckets, like where do we put them as far as these features or also just like if it's something like an email marketing tool, like, okay, like how many contacts do you give away for free if it just scales up infinitely? So in that case, I always bring it back to like, okay, who's your user? What is end user success look like for them? So what is that like desired outcome that they're hoping or that job to be done? I know there's lots of different ways of describing it in product. It's fun. <laughs> but that main thing, that main not they're trying to crack. Uh, what is that? And then I break it down into three buckets. So there's like beginner problems. Those are some of the like initial things. Like if you're trying to host a podcast or something on the side, it's like I maybe am trying to find my first guest. I'm trying to understand like what tools to use to record it, how to do all these things. Like you're going to be searching all those beginner problems. And the goal there, and this kind of will tie back to that video example too, and why the first time didn't work, the second time did, was because we for the first time, didn't solve any beginner problems. <laughs> we we're just like, hey, here's a free trial of our like intermediate solution. You got to integrate it with your marketing automation platform, all these other complicated things. And you have 14 days. Good luck. <laughs> it was just like, why didn't it work? Oh, yeah, people didn't have videos. They didn't know how to create the videos. And I was like, no, duh. Like most people don't have that. And so like when we solved that beginner problem and gave that away for free, things grew exponentially. Uh, So that's the first part. If you're tackling like what to give away for free, solve those beginner problems. And then those intermediate problems they're more advanced, they're more intricate. That's really where like back to your initial question of like where to gate, that's where like the the majority of the value is. Because when you try and monetize beginner problems, it's not as valuable. Let's just face it. It's like, okay, yeah, like how to make a video. Great. Thank you. <laughs> it's like intermediate problem. It's like, who watched that video? Ooh. Uh, like, how did Alyssa watch 98% of my video? Like, the sales demo or something? Like, that's hugely valuable. And that's worth monetizing. And you can get a lot more for that at that point. And they're using you already. So that's really like kind of the buckets. There's beginner, intermediate, and then the advanced ones more like the upsells on that end of like, this is once you master the core of our product, you can move on to this level. So it sounds like from what you're describing too, there may be some types of companies that can actually pick up product-led growth and run with it pretty well, but there's probably some companies that can't or the strategy just doesn't quite work for them. I'm thinking of like, even like super complex, like healthcare tools or something where like you would, you would need to like learn it very drastically before you get in there. Although I think a lot of this could be solved by good UX and could use a product-led lens on it. What have you found works well? Uh, what, what types of companies have you found where product-led growth works well and these strategies work well? Yeah, definitely. So there is always going to be like some of those areas where it's like, you know what, this healthcare technology that connects everybody's like, I don't know, IVs and all these other things. It's like, you want a free trial? <laughs> No. (laughs) Do I want a free pilot of seeing what this looks like? And do you, or maybe it's even a paid pilot too, to kind of see how it would work, how it could save the money. 
All those things, yes. Like that still applies. People still want to do it. Even when I talk to big public companies where they have like, they kind of define their product as like, this is like the heart transplant thing. Like you do not mess with this uh, or else it just shuts down the whole organization. <laughs> it's like, yeah, they can still do this in like small areas of the company and kind of roll it out, test it, see what it looks like. So there always is a way. It's just how does it kind of get implemented? That is, I think, the open for discussion. I think a lot of times we hear like, oh, product-led means it has to be like 100% self-serve from day one or, or some things like that. And that's not necessarily true. It's really just about how can you allow someone to really see the value of your product uh, with as little friction as possible. And so um, that's one of the ways I, I try and think about it. If you're deciding like, is this right for us or not when it comes to the complexity component? That's a really good misconception. I think that you just hit on because I do think people think product-led growth is only free trials and opening up everything in your platform to somebody new. And I have heard people say like, it just won't work here, you know, if we try these. But to me, it's sounding like the approach is not necessarily from that standpoint. It's more about how do you get people using your product so they can see the value of it as fast as possible. Totally. And so when I writing this like next book on how to build like a product-led organization, but like as part of that, the one big shift that I found really prevents companies from kind of adopting this mindset is if we kind of take a step back and we look at like, what are the fundamentals of business? If we're to like kind of categorize into like three big buckets, it's like companies need to acquire people, get them to the website, attract them, all that stuff. It's like, that hasn't changed. Okay. People need to monetize. Okay. Second big bucket. It's like, they got to make money. All that stuff is like, okay, that's common sense. Uh, stay in business at least. Third is like, you got to engage people. You got to give value ideally quickly. And so in a typical, like more sales led oriented company, it's usually like you acquire then you monetize people. And then it's all about engagement. And you kind of grow that engagement, give them more customer value over time. And so the one big shift is like, it's just going from acquisition to engagement. And then it's about monetization. And so it really seems like just one small thing. But as far as how you do business, it changes a lot, especially for the user as far as how they can interact with you. And so I think that's why there is a lot of that like, Ideally, yes, you have that free motion. You do have a way that people can engage with you as frictionless as possible. Now, with some products like we talked about, it's not always possible, but how could you engage people in a way where they get it, they understand it, you de-risk it for them, and really help them make that educated decision uh, with as much transparency as possible? You know, while you were talking about this, something just went off in my head because I have been using Dave McClure's R method for yes. the longest time. Pyrometrics. That's a long one. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. oh man. So just for the people who don't know what R is, A stands for acquisition. The second A is activation. And then it gets into revenue and then retention and then referral at the end of it. And when I first started teaching this, a lot of B2B companies were like, that's not true for us. Revenue is the first thing we do. Right? Like we, or like we have people pay and then they get acquired. And to me, now that you're saying this, I'm like, oh, that's a great framework for thinking of a funnel for product-led growth. And it is B2B companies. It sounds like it's not, it's not just B2C. Uh, so that just like blew my mind as I was talking to you. Like, hey, <laughs> everybody kept telling me this wouldn't work. <laughs> it sounds like it's getting pretty close to that. Totally. <laughs> 
So for companies that you have seen in B2B, for those out there who might be skeptics about this, what types of B2B companies have you seen do product-led growth well? Like, what, are, what do you look at and say, those are good examples of them doing this? Yeah, I mean, there's so many of like the classic examples, like we hear about the Slacks, the Miros, like the Airtables and all that stuff where it's like, oh yeah, they really like get it. I love some of the like, the smaller ones though, where it's like, you know what, they just implemented, they they got people to value really quickly. There's some examples too, I just learned about recently, like xkeldraw.com, where it's like, it's rethinking even what I talked about, like, you know, acquire, engage, and then monetize. They're putting like engage, like you don't even have to sign up, like just start using it. If you want to save anything, it's like, then you can like give us your email. So like, I see a lot more companies even like pushing the limits on like, how quickly could we get you to engage? So you just get it because like any barrier we put in your way before you start seeing that value is potentially going to take away from that experience for you. So those are some of the, like, the, the examples that first come to mind where I'm like, yeah, I love seeing companies push the limits on that engagement and putting it like as soon as humanly possible. Just like, do you understand what this is? Okay, good. Start using it. <laughs> I think so many companies too would just cry or be like, no, <laughs> if they heard that you were opening up the product without even a login page because people get scared that their competitors are going to come in and copy everything. I'm sure you've gotten that pushback from people before. Like, what do you say to companies who are like, no, we can't possibly just give this away for free or open this up without an account thing. People just get it and copy it. Yeah. So whenever I hear that, I get kind of worried. <laughs> One of the things I'm working on is like, what are the core values of a product-led business that need to exist in order for you to really make do with this strategy and make it really, really work? And one of them is transparency. And it's so important. And obviously, like, there is some tech where it's like, oh, yeah, like, we got to keep this under lock for, like, maybe hopefully good reasons. But a lot of times it's like, it's just like you're wasting a lot of time and you could be learning twice as fast if you made this more transparent. And you could be winning based on getting more users adopting it versus just kind of worrying about who is going to be potentially copying this. So yeah, I would really kind of push back on that and be like, you know what, this is going to be a thing. Like you got to make your product transparent. You got to make your pricing transparent if you want to actually have people purchase it without having to kind of talk to anybody. So there's transparency, it has to be there is a really important thing. I honestly think it's a competitive advantage too, doing that model. Like just being able to say, here's our product. We know it's valuable, like go use it. Even, you know, I, I, I work for so many companies that do competitive analysis and they're signing up for your product anyway. <laughs> they know what's behind, like they, they know what's behind it. So I, I do like that, that way of thinking. And I feel like if you just come forward with your you know, your great UX, your great product, your great value. It doesn't really matter. Someone's going to learn about it anyway. Just got to be better at really understanding what the value is and pushing your features out more. Yeah. And while we're on this fun tangent, I would apply the same thing to benchmarks. Yeah. <laughs> Every time I hear people like, so what's the best benchmark for this free trial conversion rate or something like that? I'm like, I don't trust any of those reports. And here's why. It's like, it's about creating your own benchmarks and optimizing those. It's it's like, sure, somebody else could have that. But like, back to what we talked about, what did they, what are they giving away for free? What are they gating and all that stuff? There's so many factors that like kind of matter in this big decision. So really just focus on yourself and that optimization loop, which ties back to that transparency and like opening it up. It's like, that's how you win. How fast can you optimize? How fast can you innovate? And that's the best way. 
So speaking of benchmarks and metrics, is are there a certain set of metrics that you would look at to say, hey, yeah, we're doing product-led growth or we're getting better at doing product-led growth or <laughs> we're not there at all? <laughs> what should people be measuring for success there? Yeah. So back to that, like acquire, engage, monetize part, where I find most companies are really good at is the acquisition part already. It's like, okay, good. Like uh, we have this free model. We're tracking signups. Yay. It's like, that's fine. But where a lot of companies need to develop a new muscle uh, around this is just how do we track engagement? Because we've been tracking really well, like acquisition, monetization, but that's like the missing piece. And if you don't track that, it it means it's not going to get that much focus. So <laughs> it's really important. And what I always like to, to walk companies through is like, okay, so like, what is like, however you want to define it? Is it your aha moment? Is it like first value? What is that good leading indicator of like somebody's actually getting value from this product? And so just understanding like, what does that look like for your product? And if it's your first time and you're listening to this, you're like, oh, I don't have that. Don't obsess over this. <laughs> I have seen teams spend months and months and months trying to define like, what is this perfect metric? Just start somewhere, start tracking it and seeing like, does this actually have an impact? And what you should find is like, if you track this metric of like, okay, like 25% or 30% of people got to like this one action in the product, what you should be able to tell pretty quickly is like, well, actually, you know, 80% of those people that actually get to that action, like they have a much higher chance of like actually upgrading. And if you see that connection between like, okay, they got to this value moment and the upgrade increased, um, that means you have like a pretty solid metric in place where you Did you know I have a course for product managers that you could take? It's called Product Institute. Over the past seven years, I've been working with individuals, teams, and companies to upscale their product shops through my fully online school. We have an ever-growing list of courses to help you work through your current product dilemma. Visit productinstitute.com and learn to think like a great product manager. Use code THINKING to save $200 at checkout on our premier course, Product Management Foundations. track that engagement. Facilitation is a skill I see as a fundamental difference between good and great product managers. Yet, it's often overlooked. Great product managers focus on guiding clear conversations and steering stakeholders to the best outcomes. You can develop these facilitation superpowers in Voltage Control's facilitation certification program. Ready to unlock your greatness? Apply today at voltagecontrol.com product. Did you know I have a course for product managers that you could take? It's called Product Institute. Over the past seven years, I've been working with individuals, teams, and companies to upscale their product shops through my fully online school. We have an ever-growing list of courses to help you work through your current product dilemma. Visit productinstitute.com and learn to think like a great product manager. Use code THINKING to save $200 at checkout on our premier course, Product Management Foundations. Okay. So we're, we're looking at those engagements. Do you look at anything to, I know some companies do a combination of product-led growth, right? And then they go into enterprise sales. So they're usually, those strategies are usually, they're starting off with like the small or the mid-market. And then they say, we want to move up market, go to enterprise. And then they start to hire some salespeople to do the more complicated stuff. Do you ever look at like ratios of, you know, 
dollars to sales team or how big your sales team is when you're looking at any of this, or does that not really matter? Uh, so I don't really focus too much on the ratios, but what I like the big problem with product like companies when you do layer on sales is really trying to understand like when is the best time for sales to interact with those users because a lot of users are kind of like resistant to like, oh yeah, I don't necessarily want to talk to the sales right now. I just want to kind of figure it out on my own. So that timing piece is really important. And the question I always like asking companies if they're contemplating, like, should we add sales to this whole mix is like, is that salesperson going to be adding value or friction? Not value in the sense of the business value, but value in the sense of the user's value. So like, are they going to add value or friction? And so what some of the best ways I've seen product like companies add kind of technical sales consultants to the mix is like, I was using this product, I'll give a nice shout out to databox.com. And I was setting up an automated scoreboard for our business. And I got stuck. I was like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if I could create like this custom metric, you know, getting fancy here and track it for the business. I was like, yeah, that would be cool, but I don't know how. And so there was this nice little pop-up where it's like, do you want to book a time with a technical sales consultant to kind of go through and build this out? I was like, hell yeah, like count me in. This would be great. And so it was a, an immediate way out of value. And then that just made it more likely to upgrade to the, the pro kind of account because I was like, okay, now I get it. And this is one of those more intermediate problems back to that part too, where I was like, yeah, it makes a ton of sense for this to be gated as well as I get why I, I need help here too sometimes. That's fascinating. So they had a role that was not just pure like sales contract focused. It was more like technical support or like a higher level, I guess account managers kind of do that in some places, right? But they could actually help you with best practices, set things up, solve the problem you were looking for. So they had a really deep knowledge of how to use the product to the best of your abilities. Absolutely. And like for products that have a lot of depth, it's an amazing way to serve your users because a lot of times it's like they just don't know what's capable within your product. They're like, oh yeah, I see on the surface level, like nice templates <laughs> or something. They're like, oh, you can do that like for us and like customize it. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Like the value dollar amount of like what that's worth to them is just like it 10x just because now they know how they can actually use it. That's fascinating. So do you feel like maybe with product-led growth becoming more of a prominent thing, the sales role is going to change at all? Have you seen that anywhere? Oh, totally. I think it already has. I mean, like when sales-led, marketing-led kind of companies came on the scene, it was like, there was this new role called the senior, or no, not the senior, but the sales development rep. Mm -hmm. And so like, that was like booming. It was like, everybody get SDRs. (laughs) You must have SDRs. You're going to make this model work. And now for a lot of product companies that um, might have that kind of product experience where it's like, okay, yeah, you do need a little bit of like potentially ability or some help along the way to, to get set up to reach the full potential in the product. Whether you call them like onboarding coaches, customer advocates, the whole goal of these folks is really just they're looking at where you are in the journey and they're trying to predict and help you get to those value moments faster. And like their whole metric is like, okay, how many of these users have actually got to value? And like they're actually focusing in on that because they know it's like when you get into this product, you see the value, your odds of actually upgrading skyrocket. That's fascinating. Have you seen too, like, I guess, my question is like, where do these people live? Are they under a chief sales officer? Does that change like who the chief sales officer is or who the CRO is? Or do they live under product? 
what kind of structure usually exists around these people and how do they work with the product team? Yeah, so this is the part where I'm going to say it's all over the place right now. <laughs> and I've seen it live under product. I've seen it live under sales. I've seen it live under like your CRO. I've seen it live under even marketing too. If marketing has a quality metric that's tied to like getting people to value, which is kind of important as far as looking at marketing campaigns of what is a good campaign or not, not just basing it on signups. So yeah, no good answer there, but I think that will change. Like as you were, we were talking about this before, it's like who typically leads like the product-led initiative. And like we've seen, it's like, it can be like your product manager. It can be like the CPO that leads it as well. It can be the founder if it's a smaller company. So there isn't really like, it has to be this person yet. Um, it has to be this department. Um, and this is who owns it. Um, but I think we're, we're starting to see like, there is a pretty good division between like, maybe there's that VP who manages the, the go-to-market motion. It would make most sense for it to be under them. And then there's kind of like your VP of product where they kind of manage the rest of like, how do we automate the rest of the business around the product? Fascinating. That's a really cool way to think about it. So we're looking at it falling under the go-to-market area. Who's the person who typically like works on the product-led strategies or implements it? Is it like a product manager? This term growth product manager became a really big thing, right? And I think a lot of people are like, what is that? How is a growth product manager different? But I know a lot of companies want to hire them. Who who runs this? Who what's the profile that you look for? And what is a growth product manager? Yes. So it totally depends on like the size of the business too. So for like, let's say like a mid-stage company, what I've seen work really successfully is like you'll have that CPO who's kind of like leading this initiative. And then they will have somebody who might be that growth product manager or just a product manager doing the growth product management thing. Um, <laughs> and they're the ones who are actually executing on this and making sure that like this is what's being built out in the product. And then as it kind of expands, you will have kind of like a growth PM working on like the acquisition side of things, the engagement side of things, monetization for each of those parts of the funnel. How is a growth product manager different than like another product manager? What what makes them special? What kind of expertise do they need? I was going to ask you that. <laughs> like, I think there's a lot of like nuance to it. It's like, yeah, it sounds good, right? Yeah. <laughs> growth product manager. It's like, okay, I focus on growing stuff. I think a good product manager they're focused on the right things that should move the, the lever on growth. So, I mean, I'm kind of like, <laughs> that's yeah. my take, but what's yours? It's funny because I, I worked for a company once that tried to hire me on full-time as like the VP of product for growth. And there was already a VP of product. And I was like, how is this different than <laughs> just like VP of product? It was just me optimizing like the funnels to get people into the product but I didn't see like the way that I did the work any different. I guess if I if I was going to hire a growth PM, or I guess I have hired some growth PMs, I kind of look for people who know a lot about onboarding, right? Like how to get people in there, how to demonstrate value quickly, how to make... And like UX, I think UX matters so much in those PMs. Like there's some really good backend PMs. There's good, you know, like AI focused PMs or tech PMs. But I feel like a good growth PM just has to know how to do frictionless UX, right? And like why that's important and how to hit them over the head with the smallest, not smallest, but like the things that they want to do quickly so that it then engages them to get further into the product and keep moving it. But I do think it's hard, like 
delineating that sometimes in companies, right? Like, are you a growth PM? And does that mean that you only work on the free trial stuff? And like, what if the free trial stuff is also a part of a bigger product that you unlock as you get deeper into it? Is somebody overseeing that? Is it, you know, how does it go all together? I think it gets a little confusing there. So I've always kind of seen growth PMs, you know, I'm looking for that UXE bit, just really understanding the customer, but I don't see it wildly different than a regular PM, but I'd love to know your opinion on that too. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with you on that part where it's like, it's probably a bit more like user front ends kind of focus mm-hmm. about like that's user journey, like how, where are people getting stuck from the very beginning to the, all the way through the product experience. And I think with the importance of like, where the product or where people are starting to interact with the product is is becoming way earlier in the mm-hmm. funnel. Like it used to be like, okay, after you sign the contract here, like, boom, here's the product. You're like, what? <laughs> That's the product experience? And everything else like that was like a lot less important. Whereas now it's like, whoa, that's like, I didn't even have to fill out a form or anything and I'm already in your product. Like this is nuts. So I think it's just really looking fast forward around that next step of like that journey and how to optimize it. Yeah. I think that's a really good way to think of it too. So sounds like we're aligned on, it's not a special magical unicorn who does this. It's just a really good product (laughs) manager. (laughs) So my next question is kind of about, we were talking about this a little bit with what types of companies can do product-led growth. And you said pretty much all of them. In your book, we you talk a little bit about how product-led growth might differ from red ocean strategies and blue ocean strategies too. Can you tell us a little bit about what that means and what kind of advice you have for companies that are doing one of those? Totally. Yeah. So in a blue ocean, there's a lot of education that you have to do as far as like, hey, here's this new approach. The main like kind of reason why is like people are just not sure or they don't know necessarily like what is the, the new problem to be solved or they're like, oh, I haven't really thought about that. So they're not problem aware. They got to understand a lot about the space to understand like, oh, yeah, like here's why this is a super big issue. Unless you're already in that kind of space, you don't really necessarily know about it. It's kind of like product-led growth maybe like three or four years ago. It was like, what, what is this thing? And then now we start seeing there's all these tools for like <laughs> how to qualify your product users and all this stuff. It's like, okay, yeah, they were like three years early. Now people are starting to get it and it's different. And so if you're super early in that kind of market, what's really important is like you focus on educating people and a salesperson can do a fantastic job of that. They're providing back to that question. Are they providing value or friction? In a blue ocean, a salesperson is more like consultative sales. They're providing a ton of value, under, helping you understand what are the problems, how what you're doing might not be the best approach, and get you on the same page. And so in a blue ocean, it's awesome to, to really help them, educate them. And now in a red ocean, the biggest difference is like it's usually becoming a commodity very quickly. And in the software space, it's like everything... <laughs> can be developed very cheaply, very quickly uh, all over the world. And so it's like, as soon as you have like a good market or something, you expect there to be like hundreds of monkeys kind of like competing for that same space. And so if you're in a red ocean 
and you don't have a product-led model, it's kind of silly because you want to have the most efficient go-to-market motion possible because you're going to be competing for like the lowest customer acquisition costs. You're going to be competing for like how to run more efficiently as a business. And if you're not kind of monitoring that, it's going to be very hard to, to grow a sustainable business. So that's kind of like the, the warning if you're in a blue ocean. Um, but the thing there is it's not so much like, should you be product-led? It's when. That's a really nice insight right there. So for these companies too, are trying to, they say, hey, this is going to work for me. I've got this type of strategy. I want to do it. And they start to implement product-led growth. Where are some of the number one things you see that they get wrong when trying to put this into practice? Yes. And uh, back to that very first example I kind of shared with, like we just slapped on a free trial to our existing product. I've seen that way too many times. <laughs> <laughs> where is they just think it's a free trial and it's like oh yeah product is that's all it is let's just like give people a free trial and then they also don't take into consideration that big shift it's not just you acquire people throw them into the free trial and monetize them it's not that it's you skip the step <laughs> It's like, okay, you acquire them. Maybe you have a free trial, but then it's all about actually creating an engaging experience where people get to value. And I tell you, like, this is the biggest thing and the hardest problem in building a product that business because we have all signed up for different apps on our phone or wherever, web apps. And the experience was hard. We couldn't get to value. What do we typically do? It's like, we just... Don't Quit. go back. We delete it. We can it. Exactly. And so that's like the the ultimate kind of like the challenge. It's like usually you lose 40 to 60% of people in that first experience. And that's why like for product-like companies, that first five to seven minutes of like that product experience is the make or break experience. And so that's like really dialing that in, getting people to value quickly. That's the, the toughest part of it all and most important challenge to tackle. You know, when... Thing that I see that I really hate that people do too. They put those UX tool tips on everything to explain how to use <laughs> your product. And I'm like, if your design is not good enough to just use it, you should need to go back and fix that. <laughs> One of my yeah. biggest pet peeves when people do onboarding. Kind of like duct tape for software products, isn't it? Yeah, it is duct tape for that's a great analogy, actually. I'm gonna use that. Like duct tape for software products completely. I hate those stupid little tooltips. Like I've seen people try to like bandage that up, be like, oh yeah, we're doing like this great onboarding experience and it's awful. Ugh. So when you're thinking about doing the free trial, we talked about, you know, solve the beginner problems, then unlock the intermediate problems. So those sound like good, good tips for how to slice up the products. What else besides, you know, doing that, getting the free trials wrong? Have you seen people, people make mistakes with? Yeah, I think like before you even start doing that, one of the kind of like prerequisites is you got to have like really good data and tooling to just kind of understand like what is going on. Like, are you really going to be able to like track your users with some tools that you have? Or if like I've seen companies where like they're doing this and it's like you just have Google Analytics, really? And like it's better than nothing. <laughs> but I was like expecting a bit more. And that's fine. It's like we all start somewhere, but it's like having that understanding of the user. And really, this is the other piece of another core value. Like there was transparency we talked about. The other one is like empathy. How do you understand your users? How do you make that 
really work inside your organization. And so I've seen so many great like product like companies tackle this in different ways, even from how they hire, even to how they onboard people. I've seen companies where it's like, what do you do for the first two to four weeks of the onboarding? It's like, regardless of the role, you're doing support. I was like, what? Why? And it's like, yeah, that's funny. But it's like, it's building empathy with the user. It's like, you understand the problems of the user. Exactly. And like, there's other ways. Uh, I know Andrew Kaplan, used to work at... Um, Wistia, and he would just have like full story Fridays. Like every Friday, their growth team would just go through and understand like what are the users getting stuck on as far as ex- experience. And I think the more you create like a culture around how do we understand our users, how do we build that empathy, that's kind of like one of the things you can't just like hack. It's got to be a part of like no, we care, and that comes through a lot more in a product led company. So when I tell people that they should be product led, they always think. Like the rest of the company freaks out because they go, oh, it's product management led, not product led. And <laughs> I'm sure you get that too. So, but there does have to be like a cultural shift. And I think also at the executive team level, right? Like for, for a company level and also at the executive team level to become more product led in the way that they work. What are the types of things that you see that need to change from going from sales-driven type selling into, you know, product-driven type selling. Yeah. So the way I kind of look at it is more of like changing your company level strategy versus just looking at this like in just the product side of things. So from the company level, I always start from the very, very top. So like for your vision, what what does that look like for your business? What does your mission look like? When I studied like a hundred plus product-led companies that have done really, really well, I went to like our about page. I started to find trends where it's like a lot of these product-led companies, their missions sound very similar. It's like, we make communication frictionless. We make X accessible. We make this simple. It's like, what is it doing? It's all about that empowerment. Once again, it's like, okay, we're empowering people to do something. We're making it, usually they're using a dominant play for their business, where it's like, we have the best product for the best price. And that comes across in accessibility. And they're making it easy for you to use. And so it's like, that was actually their playbook for their mission. They are basically just designing their product to to make that happen. And as part of their strategy, it's like, that was their strategy. How do they win? How do they empower their users? It's like, well, they make it effortless to get started. They make it effortless to get the value. They make it effortless to upgrade, all these things. And so how it comes across is like, it has to be a part of your company level strategy, how you will win. And I think a lot of times that gets missed in just the, oh yeah, like we... We need to be product-led because it's going to help us raise more money. <laughs> it's like, I've seen that too, but it's not really what's going to drive the, the results you want. It's funny how those things like pop up in a vision. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. we need to do this so that we can get money. <laughs> totally. <laughs> so when you're implementing more of a product-led culture or trying to do that in a company, I can see product management being total supporters. Do you get any detractors that people need to be watching out for? Like what types of, I guess, departments are usually like, no, I don't want to do that. Yeah. The biggest one is always sales where they think like, oh, like this thing is going to take my job. Kind of like we think right now, like with AI and it's like, oh, it's going to take everybody's job. And I think a lot of times (laughs) it's like at the onset, everything new, everything with like some level of change can be perceived as a bit scary because why? 
there's a bit of unknown. And once the known is known, then it becomes a lot less scary. We start realizing, actually, no, we could like empower our employees with like AI and they're actually capable of doing twice the amount of work <laughs> and they're not burnt out. It's like, that's awesome. And same thing with sales. It's like, okay, so right now you're dealing with a lot of smaller accounts. That takes up probably maybe let's say 40 to 60% of your time, these small accounts, and you get paid, let's say, on commission. Wouldn't you rather work on bigger accounts and just let the product sell the rest of those smaller accounts? And once they start seeing it, sales is actually one of the biggest advocates of it. And that's whenever I've seen companies successfully kind of transition from sales-led to product-led, where most of those product initiatives start off is actually how do we help sales? How do we help them sell more? Maybe it starts off with being like, okay, so we launched a new product. We need to upsell some customers. Let's do that through the product. Who are the best people we should reach out to? Okay, great. Let's start there. Sure, you can do your manual outreach. We'll also run this in parallel, see which one works, see how we could help you hit your goals. And so when you kind of focus being product-led on like, it's actually being about product-led, not about like product is leading the growth. And like, this is the product team's kind of uh, initiative here. It's about how can we serve all teams and empower them? I think that's really where it gets sticky. You start getting wins and people are like, oh yeah, like we could also apply that in marketing. We could give away a new free tool and that could be super helpful. One of my favorite examples of like, product-led kind of marketing is ConvertKit. So it's a great email marketing tool, easy to use. And they started realizing it's like, so our whole business is kind of dependent on people getting more subscribers. How could we make that easier? We could write a thousand blog posts on like landing pages and all that fun stuff, or we could just give a free tool or create a free tool on a landing page tool and give that away for free. And we have zero intention of monetizing it. So it's like, there's really cool ways when you start thinking across the entire organization and all departments, like what's your biggest challenge? Okay, cool. Like how could we solve that with the product? I love how this crosses, you know, everything. And it's not just a product management thing. It's not just like, hey, we got to teach the teams how to like build a prototype at that level. It really sounds like it it cuts across the whole company and it changes the orientation of the company to, to work that way. And I think that's what being truly product led means. So thank you so much, Wes, for joining us today. This has been great. I think you gave a great playbook for a lot of people to get started. If they want to go learn more or figure out how to work with you to get started with product led growth, where can they find you? Yeah. So if you want like a free copy of our book as well, I've uh, just head on over to productled.com and you'll find a ton of free stuff on PLG there. Speaking, you know, you're walking the walk here, giving yes. all, giving the good free stuff away. I love it's it. All free. <laughs> Just once Amazing. you get those intermediate problems, then we can talk. <laughs> yeah. So come to West for the intermediate, but check out all of your beginner problems on this website. And the website is really good. The, the book's all on the website. It's a fantastic place to get started. So thank you so much for creating all that content for us so that we can dive in and, you know, get started on our product-led journey. No worries. Thanks so much for having me, Melissa. So thank you so much for listening to the Product Thinking Podcast. We'll be back next Wednesday with another Dear Melissa, where I'm answering all of your questions. And if you have any questions for me, please go to dearmelissa.com and drop me a voicemail and let me know what's on your mind. We'll see you next week.